Exploring the Word is brought to you by Reclaiming America for Christ and the Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. This is Pastor Paul Blair. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word. Today we'll be completing a message that we began last time dealing with this great subject of thanksgiving. The title of this message we'll be completing is Seven Signs of God's Providence with the Pilgrims. We welcome you to the radio ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We invite you to join with us for today's Exploring the Word. Here's Pastor Paul Blair. This group believed that the official state church was too corrupt to be purified, and these separated from the established state church of England, and these separatists eventually boarded the Mayflower and came to the New World. Now understand what it means to be an established state church. Folks, and this is what the First Amendment deals with. Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion. Now, an established state church meant mandatory membership, mandatory attendance, and mandatory tithe. Non-membership was against the law. In America, we do not have a neutral history or a neutral government. Our government can certainly favor Christianity because we were established on Christianity. And it is absolute insanity when you've got Satanists coming out here wanting to put a Satan monument out on the Capitol lawn because we have a Ten Commandments monument. Folks, I can take you back and point to the heritage of biblical foundation for our country. We are this deep in it. That is not establishing a national church. What a national church would be would be saying that everybody in America had to be part of the Church of America. And maybe that's the Baptist, or maybe it's the Methodist. You are required by law. Hey, Congress cannot do that. That's what King Henry had done. That's what King James had implemented. And that's what the pilgrims were suffering from. Puritans and separatists were both forbidden from holding public office. In fact, being a separatist was against the law. In many places, they were put in stocks in the public square. They were whipped. They were imprisoned. They were branded as heretics. They were even hung or quartered, which was a terrible way to die. In 1607, one congregation in Scrooby, England, led by Pastor Robinson, sought refuge by escaping to Holland. And for 11 years, they called Leyden their home, joining with other separatists who had fled from religious persecution. But Holland was not acceptable. They were an agrarian people. This didn't fit with them economically. And also they were concerned about the moral erosion of their children. So these pilgrims decided to leave Holland. And after much discussion and prayer, they decided it would be best to immigrate to America and live as a distinct body by themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, ours was the first and only civilization built by a people whose individual families had Bibles under their arms and every person knew well the will and wisdom of God's Word. Was that an accident? No. I believe it was by God's design. Miracles number three and four. I put these together. They never got to where they were going, but they went 
where they needed to go. This congregation from Leyden faced great challenges. Travel was not as we think of today. In fact, the word travel comes from the root word travail. And that is an accurate description. The pilgrims had received permission from the king for a settlement in Virginia. Now, by the way, this was a no-lose proposition for King James. It would expand his business interests in the New World. At the same time, get rid of this troublesome group of separatists. And if they died in the process, who cares? So it was a no-lose for him. Now, all of them couldn't go at once because the number of separatists was between four and 500. But this first group was prepared to sail. And they were sailing in two ships, the Speedwell, which they had purchased, and the Mayflower, which they had leased. This famous painting that you can see hangs in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. It depicts a prayer meeting on board the Speedwell led by Pastor Robinson as they were preparing to separate. Most likely they knew that they would never see each other ever again in this lifetime. Now they departed England only to have their trip delayed because the Speedwell began taking on water. Now your first thought is, wait a second, didn't these guys do it right? They're praying for God's blessing. They're not two weeks out from England, and all of a sudden they're taking on water. They're going to sink. They've got to turn around and go back. Didn't God hear their prayers? Yes, God did hear their prayers. matter of fact, this was an answer to their prayer. They returned to England, and by the time they finally did set sail in September... Winter was fast approaching. This was too late to travel across the North Atlantic, but they did it anyway. Storms raged in the North Atlantic. As a matter of fact, in one account, the Mayflower nearly broke in half and sank because of these violent storms. Nevertheless, they survived, but they were blown off course to the north. And rather than landing in Virginia where they had intended, they landed on Cape Cod. Now you say, Pastor, big stinking deal. Well, no, it was a big deal. Because it turns out that this area around the Hudson River, where they were originally headed, was occupied by hostile tribes. The pilgrims would most certainly have been wiped out if they had landed where they intended to go. They most certainly would have landed there if the speedwell had not developed a leak and the trip had been delayed. But landing in Cape God... And by the way, after landing in Cape Cod, they didn't give up then. They attempted on multiple occasions to try to sail south to their destination. But as they described it, there were contrary winds. They were literally unable to get to where they wanted to go. They finally determined that this must be God's will that we are to settle in the Cape. Now think about this. Cape Cod was a very unique area. Listen to this. It too had been occupied by hostile Indians. But about 18 months prior to the pilgrims' arrival, a mysterious plague wiped out those inhabitants. The pilgrims landed in an area that was uninhabited, owned by no one, claimed by no one, because the other Indian tribes thought this is cursed land. The last tribe died. They landed in a perfect harbor, A land that had already been cultivated before with over 20 acres already cleared and ready for planting. And an area that had four fresh water springs. Now as our friend Frank Turek would say, I think it takes more faith to believe that all that was simply a freak accident than to believe in the providence of God. Miracle number five, Squanto. This first winter was treacherous. 
Nearly half of the pilgrim population died. The captain of the Mayflower felt so sorry for them that he offered to take them back to England for free, yet not one pilgrim went back. In fact, William Bradford wrote of this later. He said this, A great hope and inward zeal they had of laying some good foundation, or at least to make some way thereunto, for the propagating and advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world, yea, though they should be but even as stepping stones unto others, for the performing of so great a work. They weren't that concerned with themselves. They recognized the greater good, that they were just players in God's bigger picture. Wow, if we had that kind of a worldview today, what kind of America could we have in literally no time at all? Almost coinciding with the departure of the Mayflower, a miracle happened, ladies and gentlemen. An Indian walked into the camp. Say, Pastor, it's North America. What's the big deal about seeing an Indian walk into the middle of the camp? Well, this one happened to speak English. In fact, they met two Indians who spoke English, Samoset and Squanto. Squanto was well-schooled in English ways, having been taken to England as a young man in 1605 and just returning a year earlier in 1619. He missed the plague that wiped out his tribe, and it was Squanto that taught them how to fish how to stalk game, how to plant corn. It was Squanto who showed them how to find clams and eels in the rivers. It was Squanto that showed them what berries to eat, where to find nuts, what kind of nuts to eat. It was Squanto that showed them how to hunt deer, bears, and turkeys. It was Squanto that introduced the pilgrims to other tribes and fostered peaceful relationships. Squanto literally saved their lives. As a matter of fact, Bradford's appreciation of Squanto is expressed in his history of the Plymouth Plantation where he said this, Squanto continued with them, being the pilgrims, and was their interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectation. Think about that, folks. After the first winter, half the people dead, the Mayflower gone, very little seed for planting. Boy, did they need help. And in walks an English-speaking Indian that likes white people. Was that really, really lucky? Or was it a miracle of God's providence? Miracle number six. Communism was tried and failed. Now, folks, communism was not the idea of the pilgrims, but it was initially forced upon them. Their goal was religious and civil liberty. But for others, this voyage and this settlement was a business investment. The pilgrims weren't able to foot the bill for this thing all on their own, so they had investors that invested in this New England Plymouth Plantation that were shareholders of the Plymouth Plantation. After enduring the first hard winter and the arrival of Squanto, the pilgrims used a general storehouse for their produce, as was the directive of the company of the investors. Everybody wanted their share of the profits. Well, what was the result? Ladies and gentlemen, here's the problem with communism. Human nature takes over. Even among Christian men. Consider what Governor Bradford himself had to say about this experience, also in the history of Plymouth Plantation. He said, For this community was found to breed much confusion and discontent, and retard much employment that would have been to their benefit and comfort. For the young men that were most able and fit for labor and service did repine that they should spend their time and strength to work for the other men's wives and children without any recompense. 
The strong, or man of parts, had no more in the division of victuals and clothes than he that was weak and not able to do a quarter that the other could. This was thought injustice. The aged and graver men to be ranked and equalized in the labors and victuals and clothes, etc., with the meaner and younger sort, thought it some indignity and disrespect unto them. And for men's wives to be commanded to do service for other men as dressing their meat, washing their clothes, etc., they deemed it a kind of slavery. Neither could many husbands well brook it. He went on and summarized this. The experience that was had in this common course and condition tried sundry years or for several years, and that amongst godly and sober men may well evince the vanity of that conceit of Plato's and other ancients applauded by some of the latter times that the taking away of property and bringing in community into commonwealth would make them happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God. Ladies and gentlemen, communism has never worked. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that every man is to work. That is good. The Bible says that a man is supposed to work as unto the Lord. Your quality of work should be exceptional. The Bible says that you work six days and rest one. The Bible says that you're not to steal. The Bible says that you're not to covet what your neighbor has. The Bible says that you're to provide for your own household. And if a man refuses to provide for his own household, he's worse than a heathen. The Bible says that individual charity is not the responsibility of the government. It's the responsibility of the individual and the church. And we are to be concerned about specifically the widows, the orphans, and those that are crippled that can't work for themselves. We are to take care of them. However, Paul addresses specifically, if anybody is just lazy and chooses not to work, then neither should he eat. Man, the Bible's pretty wise on these things of economics and industry, is it not? Folks, we got to try communal living on a small scale with a very high character test group. And it failed. Now, if communism didn't work with this pious community, what moron thinks it's going to work with 300 million mostly pagan people? Fortunately, it didn't take the pilgrims long to figure out what would work. And they changed their strategy, as Bradford writes. But this time, harvest was come. And things was changed to the rejoicing of the hearts of many for which they had blessed God. Here's your thanksgiving. And the effect of their particular planting was well seen for all had one way and other pretty well to bring the year about. And some of the abler sort and more industrious had to spare and to sell to others. So as any general want or famine hath not been amongst us to this day. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible always works. Miracle number seven, the influence of the congregational churches and a biblical worldview. Now, folks, New England was the heart of America. It was the first success story, not Jamestown. Now, let me distinguish between the two. Jamestown was built on Anglicanism. In Anglicanism, you still had the popery. You didn't have the freedom of the Bible. You still had directives from the Nicolaitan hierarchy. In Jamestown, this was not a ship full of families. This was a ship full of men, prospectors. You had some that were the nobles that didn't want to do anything. You had the others that were tired of doing all the work. And there was nothing but fighting and disease, covetousness and disaster, fighting amongst the Indians. 
In Plymouth, you had the pilgrims. You had the separatists, local congregational churches. You had peace. There wasn't a fight with Indians in the Plymouth area for over 50 years. It was until subsequent generations, both of the Indians and the New Englanders, that didn't have the heart of their forefathers, that there began to be contentiousness between the two of them. But folks, each church in New England had its own constitution and bylaws, electing their own pastors, free to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth according to the dictates of their heart as convicted by the preaching and reading of the Bible. Now, we have been taught and are taught that we are to compartmentalize our Christianity. That as Christians, you can be just as good a Christian as you want to. Go ahead and take your Bible to church with you on Sunday morning. And from 9 o'clock until noon on Sundays, you can do your thing. But don't take your Christianity to work with you. Don't train your kids up in Christianity. And heaven's sakes, don't take your Christianity to the voting booth. Now folks, that's nonsense. There is no distinction between the secular and the sacred If Jesus is the Lord of your life, then everything you do should be sacred, should it not? If Jesus is my Lord, then there is not a single part of my living that I carve out and say, Jesus, you're not a part of this. That is exactly the way the Christians lived in the Bible. That is exactly the way the Puritans and pilgrims lived here. And as they searched the Bible for instruction. The Bible was literally the central part of their entire lives. Folks, it wasn't just metaphorical that the church sat in the middle of town. The church used to literally sit in the middle of the town. It was the center of all activity. The Bible influenced everything. As a matter of fact, John Palfrey wrote in his History of New England that the Puritans searched the Bible not only for principles and rules, but for mandates, and when he could find none of these, for analogies to guide him in precise arrangements of public administration, and in the minutest points of individual conduct. Folks, it was from this worldview that we understood that the purpose of government was not to tyrannize man, but for the good of mankind. The purpose of civil government was to punish evil, protect the good. It was from this worldview that we established the principles upon which our government stands. Folks, we have two pillars that America stands on. Number one, we have a creator. And it's not Charles Darwin. Our rights come from God. And they can't be taken away because God has given them to us. And the second thing, we have a foundation, a fixed foundation of absolute truth. That is called natural law. And is defined as such things as the holy scriptures are considered natural law because that is the law of God. Folks, our country rests on truth. God's word is truth. Our very existence rests on the knowledge that God is supreme, not government, and that God determines what is right and what is wrong. It is this worldview that gave us the wisdom of covenant where we enter into terms and conditions codified and each member entering into it and consenting to it. Think about these two things and I'm closing. God proposed marriage to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. 
This was God that initiated it. He said, I'll be unto you a God. You will be my people. And he spelled it out in the Torah, the Constitution of Israel. And Israel said, yes. Israel consented and said, yes, I accept your proposal. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, in a little captain's office on board this little bitty ship called the Mayflower, not a hundred feet in length, you'd be amazed if any of you have ever gone to the Mayflower 2, which now sits in Plymouth Harbor. You go down below deck, there is not a ceiling that's above five feet. You'd be amazed at what kind of space 102 pilgrims were crammed into for some seven weeks. They got in this small captain's office and they proposed a covenant unto God. And it says this, in the name of God, truly, we whose names are underwritten the loyal subjects of dread sovereign Lord King James by the grace of God of England, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our King and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and office from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience, in witness whereof we have hereunto subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, in the reign of our sovereign Lord, King James of England, France and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland, the 54th, in the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, 1620. Lord, we're here for your glory. Lord, we're here to advance your kingdom. Help us, guide us, provide for us. And he has. Psalm 33, 12 says this, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his inheritance. Ladies and gentlemen, we sit here today reaping the benefits of their sacrifice, enjoying the liberty to preach the gospel, able to worship Jesus freely as Savior and Lord. Let us not forget their sacrifice. Let us not forget the God who has blessed us so abundantly. Let us not forget why he has blessed us and return to his ways of righteousness. Truly the most holy of holidays. Thank you, God. Are we worthy? Nope. But thank you, Lord, anyway. But the greatest thing we have to be thankful for is the fact that in our sin, and that's certainly a state of unworthiness, God loved us even in our rebellion. It's not God's desire 
for us to spend eternity in hell separated from him. But God cannot do anything that's unjust. He can't simply look the other way and pretend that we haven't sinned. Justice must be met. We all have sinned. We all deserve God's judgment. Well, what's God to do? Well, according to the book of Acts, the foreordinate and counsel of God, he came up with a solution. The eternal Son of God stepped into creation as a man, our near kinsman redeemer. He was born in Bethlehem almost 2,000 years ago in fulfillment of the prophecies. He lived for about 33 and a half years, the last three plus. He's an itinerant preacher. Never sinned because he was God incarnate. Went to Jerusalem at Passover, the last year of his ministry, as our Passover lamb. Could have on multiple occasions escaped if he'd wanted to. As he told Peter, when Peter was offering to defend in Gethsemane, Jesus said, Peter, don't you know I could even call down 84,000 angels right now if I wanted to. This is why I came. This same Jesus, the eternal Son of God who became flesh, went to the cross as our kinsman redeemer, took our sin upon his own shoulders, and gave his life to pay the debt that we owe. He said he would raise again three days later, as the Old Testament prophecies had foresaid, and he did. This proved our justification that sin had in fact been paid for. And it also proved without question what truth is. Jesus is God incarnate who died for our sins. Proven through the resurrection. Now folks, none of us are worthy of heaven. But God in his love offers heaven to us if we accept what Jesus has done for us if we appropriate that salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. We can hand him our filthy rags, and we can at the same time be cloaked with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, be called sons of God, adopted into the family of God. Wow, that's something to be thankful for. But folks, God is so gracious, He will not force that upon anyone. It's a choice that you've got to make. He demonstrated His love almost 2,000 years ago by dying for your sins. He said, I do for you. Has there ever been a point in time where you have said, I do to Him? Taking Jesus not only as your Savior, but along with it as your Lord, giving Him your heart and life. We thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word, and we look forward to being with you next time. Until then, may God bless you, and happy Thanksgiving. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We hope that today's journey in God's Word has been a blessing to you. 
You can find more sermons and resources at our church's website, www.fairviewbaptistedmond.org or call 405-348-1745. Join us again each weekday for Exploring the Word from Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond.